pause on those conversations and we'll uh, we'll pick those back up at the end of the service all right let's go ahead and dive in those were some long announcements we gotta we gotta get started yeah you know all right okay so uh, I'm not the usual guy my name is Sam and my wife and I have been members of Providence Road for the past three years. Like Blake was sharing, I'm going to be one of the teachers of the equip classes. We're going to have an awesome class on finances that's going to be uh, super helpful. And I will be the one teaching our class where, uh, where we've been. That was going to be a, uh, a survey of Christian theology through history. Uh, it's going to be, I, I'm, I'm really excited about it. I think we've arranged it in a really interesting way. What we're going to do is we're going to, arrange it by era, but we're also going to proceed topically. And so what we're going to do for the first five weeks, we're going to look at uh, really the time from Jesus's ascension. So Jesus goes up to heaven and leaves his disciples. And we're going to look at the first five weeks. We're going to look at that time all the way to the time of Constantine. So the first, that's about early 300s. And so we're going to look at this time period, but we're also going to look at it by topic. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at uh, different issues and challenges that were facing the church that they had to deal with. So, for example, the first week we're going to be looking at persecution, how Christians confronted and dealt with persecution uh, from Rome, from Jews, all of those, all of the people that were coming against them at the time. We're going to look at how Christians dealt with controversy surrounding Jesus's nature, his divinity, his humanity. They were actually debates about that. Some people thought that Jesus was uh, fully human. Yeah, he was human. He was a prophet, but he was not really God. He was God-light. He was, he was God-like. Uh, other people thought it was the exact opposite. Some people said, no, he's divine, but he, he wasn't really human. He only seemed to be. So how did the early Christians deal with those controversies? We're also going to look at how we got the New Testament canon. Where did, where did, where did Christians decide? What, what books would be in our New Testament? When was that decided? What was the process? So we're going to look at all of those things. And even though we have arranged it as a class, it's, it's called an equipped class, uh, our goal isn't primarily to give you head knowledge. Rather, we have two goals primarily. Uh, first goal, uh, like we do anything, our, our primary goal, like anything at, uh, at Providence Road, is we want you to grow deeper in your relationship with God. Uh, we want you to know God better because of this class. And how we're going to do that is I, I, want to, I want us to see how God has supernaturally guided his people throughout history. We don't believe in a deistic God who was off in the distance and left his church and said, best of luck to you. We, we, we believe uh, a God has, and a God who has sovereignly and supernaturally guided his church, informed his church, and used these events throughout history and these controversies, these challenges that they had to work through to shape us and to form us, to, to bring us to where we are today, to our, our understanding of, of who God is. But we also want us to not just grow deeper in a relationship with God, I want us to become more uh, connected to the global and historic body of Christ. One of the unfortunate consequences of living in America and being American Christians, we have tremendous freedom. Uh, we uh, have a lot of resources at our disposal, but one of the unfortunate consequences is that we can tend to be infected by American individualism in some ne negative ways. One of those is that we often tend to think of ourselves as, as, as isolated Christians. And this church is, is a 
is a group of individual Christians who happen to be worshiping alongside one another. And, and that really is foreign to the New Testament. It was foreign to the church for, throughout most of history. Uh, we are redeemed as a people. We are united as a, as a people by the Holy Spirit, by the truth of God's word. And so uh, we want to be reminded of that by seeing how Christians in the past have dealt with these challenges we, and, and how we deal with those same challenges today. The authority of scripture, the nature of Christ, uh, how we deal with persecution in our own way. We're going to learn about how the church dealt with that and we're gonna feel connected to them in the ways that they dealt with that. And we're gonna be reminded the fact that this isn't an American thing, a Norman thing, a uh, 21st century thing. It is a all time thing that the church has been wrestling with that together. So what we're gonna do today, uh, we're going to look at the as Blake was saying, we're going to talk about persecution the first week, how the church dealt with persecution, but that actually is a big topic, and there's a lot of detail, a lot of rich history there, and it's something I didn't want to take a chunk out in one hour time, and so what we're going to do is we're going to uh, give part one of that, and it's going to be a little bit different in, in that uh, the equip class is mostly what I'll be doing in that history time, that, that class. I'll be pulling on extra biblical sources, and what I mean by that is we'll, we'll start in Scripture, but then we're going to jump pretty quickly to extra-biblical sources, meaning we're going to look at historical documents. We're going to look at the context, what's going on in Rome and Palestine at the time. Politically, culturally, we're going to get some context for what the Christians were dealing with. And so there's going to be a lot of outside sources. That's going to be a little different from today because it's our worship gathering. And we want anything in this worship gathering uh, to be rooted and founded in God's Word. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at 1 Peter, Peter's first epistle, uh, he's writing to a group of Christians, Gentile Christians, who happen to be uh, in a Roman province. And Peter is writing from Rome. And so he's going to be talking about what it's like to experience persecution in the early church in this early context. If you have a Bible, please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, you're more than welcome to use one of those pew Bibles that are, uh, in, that are the paperback Bibles that are underneath the seats in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible at all, we've got a lot of new people here today. If you don't have a Bible at all, like you don't own, you literally don't own one, that's okay. You're more than welcome to actually take one of those paperback Bibles home with you. We want everybody to have a Bible. So that, that is yours to keep, our gift to you. So 1 Peter chapter 2, before we dive in, would you pray with me for God's blessing over his word? God, we're so grateful that you have redeemed us, that you have rescued us uh, in Christ, that you have sought us, pursued us, and you have brought us to yourself. And so, God, we're here to, to, to learn more about you. We're here to be transformed uh, by the power of your Holy Spirit, by the truth of your word. And, God, you've not only saved us as individuals, but you have brought us into a covenant family. You have uh, redeemed us as a historic and global people. God, we want to uh, join with believers past and present and, and, uh, and understand how you have walked with your people through this issue of persecution, what it was like and how we can learn from that. So God, I pray that you would meet with us in this time and that you would teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. So Peter's first epistle, uh, he is writing uh, in the first three decades, two to three decades of the church. Jesus ascends to heaven. Peter is writing around the early 60s, and this is before something we call the Neronian persecution. Uh, Nero, who's a, an emperor in Rome from about the late 50s to uh, around 70, uh, starts to go crazy in the late 60s. And he, rumor has it that he sets Rome on fire, a large portion of Rome on fire. He doesn't want to get blamed for it. And so he blames the Christians. He throws the Christians under the bus. And he starts this uh, systematic persecution 
of Christians in Rome. But Peter is writing, obviously, before that. That, that Neronian persecution is likely where Paul dies. It's likely where Peter dies. So Peter's obviously writing before that. He's writing in the early 60s. And persecution for Christians looked a little bit different. Oftentimes, when we think about uh, how Christians were persecuted, we think of, uh, we think of and Roman persecution in particular, we, we tend to think of Christians being systematically like drug out of their house and tossed into the Colosseum and thrown to fight gladiators and, and lions and burned uh, alive to light up the walkways of some king's palace. And that all happens later, but that's not happening in Peter's time yet. He's going to describe what persecution looked like for the early church within the first 30 years of Christian history. So if you guys like to take notes, you are in luck because I'm a professional note giver. I'm going to be real easy to follow, all right? So Peter's going to give us three points, uh, real easy to follow. He, what he's going to do in 1 Peter, we're going to focus primarily on chapters 2, 3, and 4, and I'll be pulling selectively out of there. Peter's going to show us, one, what persecution looked like for the early Christians and what it didn't look like. So point one, what it looked like and what it didn't look like. Next, Peter is going to teach us uh, how Christians were supposed to think about persecution. And lastly, how Christians were supposed to respond to persecution. So what persecution did and didn't look like, how they were supposed to think about persecution, and how they were supposed to respond. So what did persecution look like in this early church context? Like I said, persecution under Rome wasn't that systematic at the time. It wasn't uh, deadly, as, as you might think. And in fact, the most violent persecution that was taking place for Christians came at the hands of Jews, not Romans. And Acts, if you guys are familiar with Acts, actually Acts describes this really well. Uh, the first martyr, Stephen, is stoned by whom? He's stoned by a, a, a mob of, of Jews. And Paul is there uh, bearing witness to this. James, the brother of John, is beheaded in Acts chapter 12. He's beheaded by Herod, a Jewish leader. In Acts 21, where Paul is arrested by Romans. Why is he arrested? Well, because Paul is preaching in Jerusalem and a mob of, of, of Jewish leaders want to come and stone him. They want, to, they want to kill him right there. And so Roman guards come rushing in and actually save Paul. They come rushing in to see what the, what the ruckus is about, and they drag Paul out, and they're going to beat him, as they do with all troublemakers, because they wanted to make sure they suppressed any kind of uprising. And Paul says, wait, I'm a Roman citizen. And so all of a sudden the guards say, whoa, we've got to go through protocols now. We've got to give this guy due process. Because Rome was actually a pretty orderly place. They, they celebrated diversity. They didn't have a lot. It was a lot like the United States, frankly. Like they didn't go uh, unless, it didn't serve their interest to try to suppress and weed out every different religion that they, of a part of every group that they had conquered. It wouldn't make any sense. Rome was actually fairly diverse early on and they liked uh, allowing people to kind of live and let live the way they did that. So most persecution came at the hands of Jews. What did persecution look like under Rome? Peter is going to describe that for us. So 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 11. We're going to bounce around again, but uh, we'll start in verse 11, going through verse 15. Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles. Again, Peter is writing to people who are Gentiles. They weren't raised Jews. They're in a Roman province, and he's writing from Rome. So this is not people who are facing Jewish persecution. They're Roman persecution. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify your God on the day of visitation. Be subject to the Lord, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those 
who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Notice what Peter is describing here. He's talking about Gentiles who speak against you as evildoers. In verse 15, he says, For it is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. In the NIV, it says you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Now, turn quickly. Turn quickly with me to to 1 Peter chapter 3, looking at verses 15 and 16. This is something similar. Peter says, have no fear of them. He's talking about Gentiles who speak maliciously against you. Have no fear of them. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that, so that why? So that when you are slandered, those who revile, revile means speak maliciously, those who vile, revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Again, Peter references those who revile or speak maliciously against your, your good behavior. And, and Peter seems to imply that if Christians would live faithfully, if you would live a godly life uh, and address people's questions with uh, gentleness and respect and clarity, then it would clear a lot of that up. See, Peter seems to be describing a kind of person. If, if, if you could summarize the persecution that Christians were experience, experiencing early on, most of it was in the form of ignorant gossip and slander. Some of it was malicious, and we'll talk about that in a second. Some of it was malicious. Others, uh, other parts of it, as Peter seems to suggest, was just based on ignorance, uh, a lack of understanding of what Christians were like, of what they believed in. And so we, I mean, there were all kinds of rumors spreading around about Christians at the time. Uh, They weren't thought of as their own separate religion. They were thought of as this weird and quirky Jewish sect uh, that they followed this guy named Christ who was crucified as a criminal, but it was mainly this Jewish thing. Later on, Jews would be very careful to distinguish themselves from Christians and say, we're not them, Uh, go at them. You can can go ahead and, you know, do what you want to to those Christians. But right at this time, Christians were still thought of as this Jewish sect. But they were thought of for, uh, for, they had a lot of rumors swirling about. There's this historian named Tacitus who's writing from the first century AD. And he's looking back in the Neronian persecution, all of the mean things that Neroni, uh, Nero did to, uh, to Christians. And he says that Christians were infamous for their abominations. And later in his letter, he says that uh, they were rounded up for their hatred of the human race. That's kind of weird. That doesn't sound like Christians, or at least I hope not. What was he thinking there? Well, we actually have a document from the late 2nd century, so late late in the 100s, and it's got a funny name. It's called the Octavius of Mauritius Felix. Uh, And what it is is a dialogue. It is a a letter that is a, a back and forth between a Christian and a pagan Roman unbeliever who has heard all these rumors about Christians. And he kind of lists all these rumors saying, I I have heard this about you and this about you and this about you. And the Christian is basically responding and saying, no, that's a misunderstanding. Yes, common misconception about us Christians. No, that's not really true. And so from this letter, from the the Octavius of Mauritius Felix, we're able to learn, okay, these are the kind of rumors that were going around about Christians. A lot of the rumors were due to the fact that Christians at the time tended to be a little bit, not standoffish, but we were private in the way that we Uh, we worshiped in some way. So when we had worship gatherings like this, there's some evidence that we allowed uh, people who were not believers in Christ to participate. For example, Paul, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 
He says that he wants the church worship gathering to be structured. He wants it to make sense. Why? Well, he says that, so if unbelievers happen to walk in, I want them to, to, to know what's going on. They should be. Worship gathering should be like clear in that if you're not a believer, you could say, okay, here's what they're doing and this makes sense now. So unbelievers were present in worship gatherings like we do today. But uh, when they celebrated communion, what we do down here up front, when they celebrated the Lord's Supper, Christians held that in private. And so there were all kinds of misconceptions and rumors swirling about what, what Christians did when they were in this Lord's Supper. And uh, this is going to sound kind of funny, but early Christians were accused of sexual immorality a lot. And a lot of that had to do with the private worship gathering for a couple of reasons. One, we called it the agape, which translated what they were translating as the love feast. So it looked like we had this private worship gathering called the love feast where we had a bunch of people in there. It sounded like this kind of weird sexual orgy thing, all right? Uh, and, and also, we, we were accused of incestuous relationships. And that can kind of make sense because you've got a bunch of husbands and wives calling each other brother and sister uh, in Christ. I mean, it's true. They were thought incestuous, like they didn't get the brother-sister language at all. Uh, also, we, we had this practice of greeting one another with a holy kiss. Uh, and... That also makes sense because Peter, later in the book, at the very end, is going to command believers, greet one another with a holy kiss. And no less than five times in the New Testament are we commanded to greet one another with a holy kiss, right? Three times in the imperative. Uh, and so I have no idea why we don't practice that one anymore. Uh, I, I, think we'd, uh, we, I think we'd have a lot of people, more people coming to the service, honestly, if we were giving each other sugar every time we came here. Like, I... Uh, it's never happened to me, but we don't practice that anymore. But at the time, we had people greeting one another with a holy kiss, calling husbands and wives, calling each other brother and sister, going to this private thing called the love feast. And there was all this confusion about, okay, these people are sick, right? Like, and, for, and for Romans to say, oh, gross, you guys are sexually perverted. That's pretty bad. Uh, so there, was, there, were, there were rumors swirling about things that could be cleared up, right? Things if we explain them. Christians were also accused of being antisocial and snobby. Uh, that might be something that resonates with college students, right? Like a little bit uh, being a little standoffish. The reason why that happened is because Christians couldn't participate in a lot of Roman events. A lot of it had to do with pagan worship. If, if at every football game, in college, an NFL game, and college football game, and baseball game, it was uh, preceded by some kind of sacrifice and worship to a pagan god, Christians might rightly kind of say like, no, this isn't, I'm not really comfortable with this. I'm not going to participate with this and this as much. And Christians were doing that to all of these Roman festivities. And so Christians were accused of being snobby and standoffish. That's where the hatred for humankind comes in. So some of that, again, could just be cleared up by explaining, hey, here's what we're about and that, no, that's not true. And uh, here's what we do. Other rumors were actually based on fundamental ideological disagreements that were going to get us into trouble later on down the road. So for example, Christians were accused of atheism. Uh, that's kind of funny to think about, but Christians were called atheists. Why? Well, because uh, if you're a Roman uh, and you don't believe in the Roman gods and you don't sacrifice to or acknowledge the Roman gods, you're called an atheist. You don't believe in our gods, so you're an atheist. Uh, now, that wasn't because we didn't get persecuted because of that, because uh, they don't like people worshiping different gods than them. It was because God worship, pagan God worship in Rome was tied to the economy. Uh, we have this letter that's going back and forth between a guy named Trajan, who was like a, a, a small town governor, and a guy named Pliny the Elder, who was a, an overseer of a, of a larger province. And they're going back and forth, and they're talking about how they treated Christians, how they dealt with Christians. And uh, Trajan actually says that when, when I suppressed Christianity, when I got rid of them, when I started persecuting them and driving them out, 
God worship came back and money started to come into the temple because this was big time economy, right? Like people, not just priests and people who built temples, but also uh, people made a living in Rome off of selling little trinkets and objects so that you could use those in your worship of the pagan gods. And if you wipe that out, as was happening in a lot of these provinces where Christians were, were, were exploding, uh, it hurt their economy and they had uh, economic reasons to drive you out. So Christians were accused of atheism. They were also accused of being unpatriotic uh, and enemies of the emperor. And this also had some foundation in, in, in the things that we believed. Even though Peter, as we just saw in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, says, honor the emperor as supreme, right? Like you should, you should, and not as God, but you should respect the emperor, give honor to whom it is due. Paul says this in Romans chapter 13, you're supposed to respect the godly authorities. We're supposed to be good citizens. That is, that is a good thing. We're called to be that as Christians. And yet, we can't, we can't call the emperor uh, a human god. We're not going to offer sacrifices to him. We're not going to worship him. Uh, and later on, not right now when Peter is talking, but later on, this is actually going to be a way that Romans weed out Christians. What they do is they drag them out and they make them say, hey, what, what we want you to do, I've heard you're a Christian, what we want you to do is we want you to curse Christ and we want you to offer sacrifices to the emperor and call him, say Caesar is Lord. Christians wouldn't do that, and so it was a real easy way to test whether or not you were a Christian. If you're a Christian, you don't do that, and so we'll kill you now. That's not happening right now, but that is what the kind of persecution that the, the, the Romans uh, were, or the kind of slander, the kind of misunderstanding, the kind of uh, gossip that was swirling about around Christians that would later lead to some more serious persecution. So what persecution looked like for the early Christians seemed to be gossip, malicious slander, those kinds of things. What was persecution not? What did it not look like? Peter actually, I love how he does this. He actually says, like, don't think that this is persecution. Let's look. Chapter 2. Let's go back to chapter 2. This is verses 18 through 20. He says, servants. And when I say servants, uh, it, it's sometimes translated slaves. The best translation for it is really bond servants, a kind of servant that voluntarily gave themselves to be a servant because of, uh, of obligation to their master, that kind of thing. Not like you and I think of antebellum slaves, okay? So bond servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and to the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. So it's a good thing if you can suffer persecution that is unjust. God respects that. God honors that, right? He blesses that. But what credit is, is verse 20. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if you do good and suffer for it, you endure. If uh, when you do good, you suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Jump to chapter three. Skip to chapter three. We're going to look at verse 13 and verse 17. Peter says, now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Go to 17. It says, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that's God's will, than for doing evil. One last time. Jump to chapter 4. Chapter 4, starting in verses 14 and going to 15. He says, Peter says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Again, persecution, being insulted for the name of Christ, right? Like for the right thing, uh, for, for the good thing. Because the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. So in each of these situations, Peter draws a distinction between suffering for doing good. That is suffering for Jesus' name, suffering for doing the right thing, for living righteously. And suffering that is, that is the result 
uh, of being a bad citizen, being a bad employee, being a bad student. I love that Peter makes the distinction, right? Like we don't get rewarded. We don't get points for happening to be a Christian while we do the wrong thing. That's not persecution. That's just, that's just uh, being disobedient. Let me give you an example. Since we have so many college students here today, uh, I want to give you one that will resonate with you uh, from my own experience. I've shared a, a version of this uh, story with a, at a men's time we had, a smaller men's time we had this, this past summer. When I was in college, I was, a so, I was a sophomore, and I had been an English major. I started off as an English major because I love reading, I love writing. Uh, if I have any gift in my, in my life, it is, it, is, it is one of those things, right? So it is uh, something that I love to do. I changed my major later on, but I was in an English composition class, English 2, my sophomore year. And uh, I was uh, on fire for the Lord. I mean, I, I, mean, I think my intentions in, in a lot of ways were good. I was, I was zealous to share my faith every opportunity that I had uh, with everybody I talked to. As, as, uh, as Shane Cameron and I have joked before he had the same situation, I was majoring in college ministry at the time. Right? Like, that's all I wanted to do. That's all I cared about. And so uh, I was also a bad student. I was lazy. I, I think I had gifts there, but I was... Lazy, I, wanted, I put it off because I wanted to do other things. And so in this English class, I was already not a very good student, but the professor was this uh, you know, British, atheist, liberal, secular, everything at the time that I felt like, oh, it's just antithetical to everything that I, I believe. British, oh, you know, like it's, it's I, I, couldn't, I couldn't deal with it. So I took it upon myself every chance I got to be that kid in class. Like I would, one, I, I wasn't really doing the assignments consistently because I thought they were dumb and a waste of my time. But I also, in class, whenever she opened, it, opened the floor up, I took the opportunity to identify with Christ, to disagree with other students, to disagree with her, uh, to, to, to share a Bible verse. I, one time I actually got up, I, I, I snuck away to like go to the, to, the, to the chalkboard and write the bridge diagram. You know, the bridge diagram where like Jesus, you're on one side, Jesus is on the other, like a gospel side. Like, I, I can't remember how, what ruse, what pretext I used to get up there and do that, but it was obviously I was hijacking the class. So, as you might imagine, at the end of the class, I failed that class, right? Like, she failed me. And, uh, and so, it, 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 we might ask the question, was that persecution for the sake of Jesus? No. That was just me being an idiot, right? Like, that's, I deserved to fail that class, y'all. Like, I, I deserved it. And if I had, as a professor now, if I had that student in my class, I would not only fail that student, but I would confront that student. Like who, is, who is identifying with Christ and is continuing, persisting in being a horrible student, I would tell him, stop, stop publicly declaring that you are a Christian when you are a lousy student. You are a horrible student, right? Like I, you don't deserve to pass this class and you really don't deserve to be in college if you continue to do this kind of thing. Right? It's not giving honor to God. It's not giving glory to God. Christians are supposed to be the best students. We're supposed to be the best employees. We're supposed to be the best citizens. Right? So when we... When we experience bad treatment that's just the result of us being one of those things, like bad, bad at any of those things. It's not persecution. And Peter, I love how he draws the distinction. Persecution that he's talking about is persecution for speaking the name of Christ, doing the right thing, not persecution for being a lousy citizen, student, uh, employee, person. You get me? All right, so persecution that he's describing. And persecution that he's describing is one thing in Rome. It is mostly slander. It's mostly libel. It's mostly misunderstanding. And what it's not, it's suffering for doing the wrong thing. And you don't uh, deserve credit for that kind of deal. How are Christians supposed to think about persecution? So that's one. How are Christians supposed to think about it? And I promise the rest of these are going to go faster than point one. 
Peter actually gives us three perspectives here. Three perspectives that he wants Christians to keep in mind. First, uh, turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. Chapter 4, verses 12 through 13. What he says is, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So the first perspective Peter wants to get is suffering for Christ. Persecution is not surprising. It's expected. And in fact, Jesus says that it's guaranteed. In Mark chapter 13, verse 13, he says, you will be hated for my namesake. That's what he tells his disciples. John, chapter, uh, 1 John chapter 3, verse 13, he says, do not be surprised, brothers, if the world hates you. The apostle Paul 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. This is the best one. He says, uh, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I love that. Who's going to be persecuted? Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. Right? It's guaranteed. Right? It's, it's coming if, you're, if you are a faithful disciple. Now, why is it important for Peter to teach Christians that you shouldn't be surprised? It's coming. It's guaranteed. Right? This shouldn't be surprising. Uh, why is that important? Well, two reasons. If, if we uh, are experiencing persecution and we don't realize, like, look, this is expected of God's people. I'm, I'm going to experience persecution, slander, mistreatment, misunderstanding. If I don't understand that, then I might misunderstand, like, the bad treatment I'm getting is something that I deserve. Like, I did something wrong. Like, I've displeased God. Like, if I, and it may be. I mean, if, if, if I search my heart, though, if I think about my actions and I think of, like, have I been a, a bad student? Have I been a bad employee? Have I been a bad citizen? Do I deserve this? No, I, I, I've just been walking faithfully. Then I can know that, look, it's not because God is displeased. It's because it's guaranteed to come to disciples, right? It's guaranteed. And so not being surprised means like, hey, I don't need to be shocked. And I don't need to question my faith or question my obedience. But let's look at the flip side. What if I'm not being persecuted? Never, ever in my life. I never experience any misunderstanding. I'm everybody's best friend. Everybody likes me. Nobody slanders me. Nobody says, like, man, that's kind of, it's kind of weird that you believe that, or it's kind of weird that you stand on that, that principle. But everybody says, like, yeah, that's cool. Uh, it's worth asking the question, have I really taken a stand for Christ? I'm not talking about taking a stand on, like, marginal political issues that we like to, to, to highlight as the most important thing. I'm talking about taking a stand for Christ, saying, this is what I believe, this is who I am, here are the areas where I won't compromise. If you've never experienced any kind of misunderstanding, or any mistreatment, any kind of persecution for that kind of thing, uh, it's worth asking the question, am I, am I really walking, right? Am I really walking faithfully? Am I putting myself in the kind of position where I could be misunderstood, where I could put myself out there and somebody might not like me? Or is it just really concerning to me that everybody likes me, that I'm cool with everyone, right? And in such a way as I end up compromising my beliefs or I compromise the gospel. Jesus has this great verse Luke 6, 26, he says, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. That's pretty powerful, right? Woe to you when all men speak well of you. I have to ask myself that question. If everybody's cool with Sam, if nobody, nobody misunderstands me, nobody, I, I don't feel the prick of kind of embarrassment, like when people say, like, oh, you know, you probably wouldn't like this, you probably wouldn't be into that, you know, you're one of those. Uh, if I don't get misunderstood, am I really walking faithfully? So that's the first perspective. The second perspective, uh, look at verse 13. Peter thir or 1 Peter 4, verse 13, he tells us to rejoice inasmuch as we share in the sufferings of Christ. 
so that we may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Turn back for a second. Chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. Peter says something similar. He says, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. We're going to dive into this a lot more during our first equip class. Uh, but for now, the perspective I want you to get, uh, this is the second perspective I think Peter wants us to keep in mind, or Christians to keep in mind, is that suffering is a mark of discipleship for the early church. Right? Like what characterized you as a disciple of Jesus? It wasn't just trusting in his grace, uh, drawing closer to God through spiritual disciplines like prayer, keeping oneself unpolluted by the world by being uh, righteous and godly. It was sharing in Jesus's sufferings. So when we are persecuted, we become like Christ, and he wants us to do that. Third perspective. So that's the second perspective. The third perspective, look at 17 again. Chapter 3, verse 17, he says, It is better to suffer for doing good, if that be God's will. So are you telling me it's, it's God's will that I suffer? It's God's will that I experience persecution? Yeah, that seems to be what Peter is implying here. Now, I don't, I don't, I'm not saying that God is causing the pain. I'm not saying he's himself bringing the suffering. He ordains it. He allows Satan and sinners to, to persecute, to mistreat, to malign, uh, and, and to speak against you. But why? Why would God do this? Why would God, why would it be God's will for Christians to suffer or experience persecution? Peter is about to explain it. Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. He just a few verses down. Peter says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of his time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So Peter is saying Christ suffered, in the, this is the gospel, right? So Christ suffered in the flesh to kill sin in us. And so we're to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking, not because we can kill our own sin or uh, kill all of our sins so that we can live completely sinlessly, but because when we are tried, when we are tested, when we suffer according to God's will, we are united with Christ. We throw ourselves at his mercy and we say, God, I, I need your grace. I need your strength. I can't do this on my own. And, uh, I, 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 and I, I am in that process killing sin. I'm separating myself from the things of this world. I'm becoming less attached to the things around me. And so God uses, he wills persecution into our lives so that he can refine us, so that he can uh, uh, help us grow more in Christ-likeness. So how are Christians supposed to think about persecution? They were supposed to uh, realize that it's guaranteed. Don't be surprised. It's coming. They were supposed to recognize that this is the way we are marked as disciples, that we unite with Christ in his sufferings. We join him in his sufferings. And third, uh, that it is God's will, and he is bringing this to us so that we can be refined, so that we can grow in Christ-likeness. Last point. Okay, this is the last one, and this is going to be the shortest, I promise. How are Christians supposed to respond to suffering? We've already seen one example in chapter 4 that we just read. We're supposed to rejoice. We're supposed to rejoice that we get this opportunity to share in Christ's sufferings. We get to join with Christ in his sufferings, to grow in Christ's likeness that way. But what else? Chapter 4, verses 16 through 19, and we're gonna, this is where we're, the last passage we'll read. Peter says, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in that name. For the time of judgment is to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us, 
what will it become? Uh, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and sinner? This is the focus. This is the key. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. So we, Christian, we see that Christians are supposed to praise God for the opportunity to suffer for Him and to join with Christ in His sufferings. But what else? We're supposed. To, we see that He says. I mean, it's it's just as simple as it could be. Those who suffer according to God's will, again, God bringing that persecution to us to grow us. Those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. I love that Peter says that, right? I love that Peter emphasized, like, this is, this is what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to continue walking in faith while entrusting ourselves to God in, this, in the face of persecution. Peter's teaching here is phenomenal. I, I love what Peter teaches the early church and, and by extension, us through these passages. And I think it's so relevant to us as Americans because we're not being cast into the lion's den. We're not being thrown into gladiatorial contests. We're not being burned alive. That stuff is happening in other areas of the world. But most of what we experience as Americans is the kind of persecution that Peter is describing here. It's going to be maybe a little bit of malicious slander, a lot of misunderstanding, uh, things that could be cleared up, things that could be resolved by hopefully living consistently with, with what we know to be God's will in our lives. Uh, and, and we're going to face that kind of thing. But college students, you guys more than anybody else have the opportunity to experience this kind of thing uh, this year. So I'm glad we're talking about this at the beginning of the semester. Uh, you are going to be entering a situation in which there is a lot of ideological diversity, maybe a lot of professors who don't uh, godless professors who don't believe what you believe and want to look for opportunities to shame that or to embarrass you or to uh, say like, hey, this isn't uh, you know, uh, logical or reasonable or factual or those kinds of things. And you will have an opportunity to identify with Christ. And I don't mean being a jerk like I was. I mean being a faithful, uh, obedient student, giving honor where honor is due, but saying, this is who I am. This is what I believe. These are the areas where I won't compromise. And what are you going to do when you see that coming? Well, you can be confident that it is not a surprise, but it is guaranteed for those who walk obediently in Christ. You can trust that God is sovereign over it. And you can entrust yourself to your faithful creator. And with the help of God's people here at Providence Road or wherever you end up deciding to go to church, those of you who are here for the first time, uh, you can continue to do good and walking obediently. And God is honored by that. Come back. Uh, not this Wednesday. I mean, come back all the time. But come back uh, next Sunday. But what we're talking about, we're going to continue on in this discussion. We're going to dive in a little bit deeper. Not this Wednesday, but the following Wednesday, 630. Uh, we're going to dive into the rest of persecution in the story, okay? Let's pray together. God, I'm so thankful that you have... Uh, given us this teaching from Peter, uh, Peter's writing to the first Christians about what persecution was like. And God, this really mirrors a lot of our experience that we are going to, in the United States, in our context, likely experience some misunderstanding, likely experience some, some uh, ignorant gossip and some slander about what Christians are like and what they believe. And so God, I pray that we would keep these truths in mind, that it's, it's not surprising. It's, it's guaranteed for believers if they're walking obediently that it helps us, it allows us to identify with you and your sufferings, Lord Jesus. And that, God, you have brought it into our lives so that you can refine us, so that you can grow us. 
Lord, help us to respond when we see that, when we experience that kind of persecution. And I pray that we would be the kind of people who open ourselves up to it. Not that we pursue it in some kind of masochistic way, but that we open ourselves up. We put ourselves in the kind of position where we are being bold. We're we're getting out there and saying, like, man, this is what I believe. This is who I am. We're challenging people with the gospel. We're challenging people with Jesus. And we're opening ourselves up to this kind of thing. And that when that happens, God, we entrust ourselves to our faithful creator and continue to walk in obedience. God, we pray that you would empower us to do that supernaturally in your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.